nine ways to embrace singledom as a classic woman, how strong the women in the Bible are, and how long should someone date before getting married. All this and more on today's episode of the Classically Abbey Podcast. Welcome to today's episode of the Classically Abbey podcast. I'm so glad you are here. This is episode number two, so we're getting into things. I really am enjoying recording, just sitting down and chatting. I was really nervous about it. I kind of mentioned it in the last in the last episode, just sitting down and talking for 45 minutes. But it turns out I actually kind of like it. And you guys have been really enjoying it too. We've been getting a lot of great feedback, so that's pretty awesome. But if you missed the first episode, then you won't know how this is structured. So in every episode, we do four segments. We start off by doing an intro and catching up. Then we do the main portion, the main topic of the episode, followed up by the faith talk, where I give you guys a little bit of insight into the Torah for me, the Bible, the Old Testament for you, if you're Christian. And then we go ahead to subscriber questions. So if you are a premium subscriber to my Substack newsletter, you will get access to the opportunity to submit questions for every episode. And I will choose a couple of those questions each week to answer. Now, I also want to do a quick plug for my Substack newsletter. If you aren't subscribed to my Substack newsletter, you should definitely check it out. You will get a ton of exclusive content, including access to my book club, my movie club, our community. We have discussion threads, a weekly exclusive article, and submitting questions for videos and podcasts just like this. So I would love if you would join us over there, but I'm so glad that you're here. And if you are enjoying the episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe on my YouTube channel so you can watch it. So let's just hop right into the life updates. So that's kind of what I like to talk about at the beginning is what's been going on in my life, maybe what's going on in the zeitgeist a little bit. So maybe we'll start there. Maybe we won't start with the life updates. Maybe we'll start off with what's going on in the world. And if you don't know, Prince Harry's new book, Spare, just came out. And that is his book. It's his tell-all. He's he's saying, he's saying everything. <laughs> it's the gossip book of the year. Now, I... Personally, if you've followed me for a while, you probably know this, but I personally take issue with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. I don't really love that whole situation. I don't like how they've treated their their removal. No, they, they chose to leave. They're leaving from the monarchy and the, the royal family and then how they've actually kept themselves in the spotlight consistently and constantly because Megan complained about how awful the press was when she was a princess, I think many of us assumed, well, then she's going to want a more private life so she doesn't have to deal with that constantly. But instead, she is constantly in the limelight. She's constantly putting herself into people's faces. I mean, she was on Oprah. She's got these, this documentary on Netflix. Now Prince Harry's coming out with his book. And it's like, oh, my God. We are oversaturated, in case you were wondering. But Prince Harry's book just came out. I just started listening to the Audible because I want to be able to talk about it here. I neglected to watch the Harry and Meghan documentary on Netflix because, to be honest, I didn't want to waste my time. 
Uh, I don't know why I'm choosing to waste my time with the book, but I thought, hey, if I'm going to continue to comment on this relationship, on Meghan and Harry, then I should probably know what's up. So (laughs) I'm currently listening to it. I'm about two chapters in. It's not the best. Uh, I'll just say that. But I'm, I, I've got I've got a ways to I've got a ways to go. So we'll see <laughs> how it how it progresses. Uh, if you are interested in the whole Harry Meghan thing, I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. You can leave the comments on YouTube, or if you become a premium subscriber, you can leave it on my Substack, where you can get access to my newsletters. But yeah, so that's what's going on with that. I'm actually reading. Four books right now. Uh, I'm reading a book called The Queen by Andrew Morton. It's a uh, biography of Elizabeth. And that just happened to be the book I picked up at the same time that Spare came out. So now I'm reading two books about the monarchy, which is kind of funny. Uh, and then I'm also reading a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, which I'm reading for our book club for the Classically Abbey Substack. And my husband recommended it. It's by Jonathan Haidt. He's been talking about it for a long time. I've read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, but I haven't read The Happiness Hypothesis. So that's what we're reading for book club. And then I'm reading for the book club that I host for my community, uh, a book called, I think it's called Live in Love, and it's by Laura Aikens. I personally don't know anything about the country singer Thomas Rhett. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. So Thomas Rhett is a country singer that all of my friends apparently love, and they love that all of his music is about his wife, which 100% I agree, that's awesome. Like he's built his career off of just loving his wife so much. And so his wife wrote a book, and they all decided that's what they wanted to read. So that's what we're (laughs) reading right now. Uh, Four nonfiction books, I'm realizing, which is kind of a lot for me. Generally, I prefer fiction, but... I will say, I'm pretty far into The Queen by Andrew Morton, loving it. Really well written. It doesn't feel super dry. It feels like a story, which is my favorite way to read fiction. Um, And I haven't started The Happiness Hypothesis quite yet. That's on, on the docket. And I started listening to Live in Love. Super sweet. I mean, she seems like a sweetheart. And uh, I look forward to actually listening to the rest of the book. So, That's what's been going on in my reading life. If you're reading something, let us know. But I also wanted to mention that my husband and I hosted a murder mystery party, and it was so much fun. If you've been wondering, are murder mystery parties that you host at home fun? Like, are they worth it? Did you watch The Glass Onion and think, hey, I want to host my own murder mystery party? Um, You should do it. It's really, really fun. And ours was themed, so everyone had to dress up in the 1930s fashions, and we put a little, like, ambiance movie film, let's call it a video uh, from YouTube, uh, on our TV screen. And then we also listened to some 1930s classics. So it was super fun. Everyone so got into it. Everyone had an accent. They had, like, weird characteristics and secrets secret traits, which made it so much funnier. And because everyone totally committed, that was what made it fun. So that's, I think, the big lesson and takeaway from our murder mystery party is if you're going to host something like that, make sure that everyone is really committed to being in character and just going all out. Because number one, that means people won't flake. I wrote a whole article about this, but If your friends have buy-in to an event that you're hosting, then they're not going to flake as easily. And number two, people just really enjoy doing something that has that much 
investment. And so it was a lot of fun. People were supposed to leave like we assumed people would leave around 11. People stay till one in the morning. And we all have kids. We're, we all have par- like we're all parents, <laughs> but we made it work. So definitely recommend doing a murder mystery party. I picked mine up from TJ Maxx for like $17. You can just buy a box from TJ Maxx or Marshalls or something, or they probably have them on Amazon too. So Highly recommend. I also hosted an impromptu grilling get together because my husband just got a new grill and I wanted to have him celebrate that with our friends. And just the day of, I texted a bunch of my friends and I said, Hey, do you guys want to come over and like bring steaks, (laughs) bring steaks or bring ground beef and we'll make some food. And I was so shocked because all of, I invited three couples and their kids and they all were like, yeah, And so I was so happy because day of, they all agreed to come. And that's the really cool thing about being in a community. I highly recommend it. So a little, a couple of other things I wanted to talk about, the sweat app. So I got a question and um, from a premium Substack subscriber, and I didn't necessarily want to make it like a subscriber question to talk about, but she kind of was asking about my workout routine and, and what I'm doing and At this point, my workout routine is the sweat app. I do the sweat app and I am, I really, really like it. Like it's, it's been a great thing for me. It keeps me consistent and I can choose the length of the workouts that I'm doing. So they range from, you know, 20 minutes to an hour, but I really only have 25 to 30 minutes in the morning when my mom comes to babysit Mr. Baby. So I have been able to work out four days a week. I have dumbbells and a bench. That's all that I have. And that has been more than enough. I've seen a change in my body. I feel physically really good. I'm starting to lose a little bit of baby weight that I've been like excited to lose. And that's been a great thing for me. Now, I signed up for it when they were having a sale for Christmas, but it's still not super expensive and it's way cheaper than like a gym membership. So if you want to work out from home or really you can do the workouts that they have at the gym too, because they have all of their um, exercise regimens are based around what equipment you have. So if you have a gym membership and you want like guidance about what to do and how to use that, the equipment at the gym, then the sweat app would be amazing for that too. But if you're doing home workouts and you only have a couple things like, um, like bands or dumbbells or, I don't know, a yoga mat, like that will, they can work with that. And so I've really enjoyed the sweat app. Last thing we're going to talk about in life updates is I wanted to make a little recommendation because it's something that I find so helpful. So I have a notebook that I use to brain dump my to-do list every single day. And it is so helpful having the ability to just sit down and write down everything I need to do. And then I like throughout the day, will go back to that list, cross things off, or I will reorganize them based on priority. And by the end of the day, like the page that I have marked out for that day has so many notes and scribbles on it that has helped me figure out, okay, so this took longer than I expected and this didn't get done yet. So how can I rejigger the day to make sure that I get everything done? And that has been a game changer. So if you are like me and you think on paper, because that's really what it is, I think on paper, 
then I really recommend picking up a notebook and a pretty one too, because I like having one that I enjoy picking up. Buy some pens you like or find one around your house and just have a piece of paper always available to you to write down little notes, to write down your to-do list, to write down your schedule and keep your keep your head on straight as you're kind of taking on the day. So let's get into the main portion of today's episode, which is nine ways to embrace singledom as a classic woman. So as you know, here on my podcast and on my YouTube channel, I talk a lot about faith, family, and community, and I talk about how important marriage and motherhood is. Now, I think those things are really important, but as a single person, I think that we can feel guilty or not worthy or like our lives don't matter until we get married and have children. And that is totally incorrect. And that is not the point I'm trying to get across here. One thing I do want to clarify before getting into the main bit of what we're talking about is my content is really geared towards explaining to those women who don't know that it's important to to make their lives conducive to having children and a family, that that is the goal, right? That everything else, all this leftist narrative, all this media that's going to tell you that it's important for you to find yourself outside of marriage and family, that that stuff is really not going to make you happy. And so when I am being a proponent of this stuff, it's from the perspective of trying to convince those women who or at least give them a space to pursue tradition (laughs) and pursue the things that traditionally have made women happy and that they don't have to feel guilty about that. So when I talk about marriage and family, that's where that's coming from. It is not meant to make those women who are actively trying to find a husband or are actively trying to have children feel bad about themselves because you get the project. Like you understand what we're here for but your path may not be there yet, or you may be going in a different direction and that's okay. So I think that being single is actually great. And I loved being single. There's a reason that we weren't born in pairs. There's a reason that we weren't born with the person we're going to end up with and that we don't have children immediately, right? Because there is an important stage of singleness that allows us to become better on our own so that when we come together with our future spouse, we already know what we're about and, or we can grow with them, but it's not supposed to be that you are with the person you're going to end up with from the time you're born. That's just not the way it's supposed to be. God didn't build the world that way. So if God didn't build the world that way, then it's important that we understand the importance of the single era of our lives. And I want to talk about how you can enjoy it as a classic woman, how you can really learn to love this time of your life even if you are interested in, pers- in in a bigger goal later on. Like something I talk about and I've mentioned before is the idea that you can love where you're at while also having an eye towards the future. You don't have to hate where you're at in order to make moves to change or make moves to do something different. For example, losing weight. I think that's a very good example. People often think that if you say you are losing weight, it means you hate your body where it's at. No, you can love your body for everything it's doing for you. You can enjoy dressing it. You can enjoy being who you are and comfortable in your skin while also saying, 
I'd like to lose a couple pounds to be healthier, or I'd like to lose a couple pounds so that I can fit into clothes a little bit differently. But that doesn't mean I hate where I'm at. It doesn't mean I hate my body. It just means that I can recognize that maybe there's some improvement that can go on there. The same thing happens and is relevant when it comes to being single. I loved being single. I thought it was super fun. I enjoyed my time as a single woman, while at the same time, I knew that I wanted to get married and have a family. And because I wanted those things and I didn't have them at the time, you're not always going to be happy being single, right? Like it's not always that comfortable. So with that in mind, I want to talk about nine ways you can embrace this single time in your life. So let's start with number one, take yourself on dates. Now I used to do this all the time and I miss it. Like I loved it. I would take an entire day and do things by myself that I wanted to do. I would go see movies. I would read a book at lunch. I would like take myself out to a restaurant, read a book, get a glass of wine and just enjoy myself. I would go to museums by myself, which I cannot recommend enough. Going to a museum on your own, on your own schedule, where you don't have to follow someone else around, where you can just sit and take in the art as much and as in your own way as possible, where you can sit and sketch if you want to, and you don't feel the pressure to move on. And just taking a whole day and enjoying it. There's something so special about the time of being single where you get to do this. You don't really get to do this at other parts of your life where you'll just do things alone because you can, because you want to. Just, I loved seeing movies by myself because I liked the chilled out nature of it where no one else was, I wasn't looking at somebody else for their reaction. I could just take in the movie on my own and see what I thought. Like I wasn't constantly checking in with the person next to me. Are they thinking it's funny or do they think this is boring? It was just my own experience on my own. I loved going out to lunch by myself because I didn't have to like sit there and talk to someone or impress them. It was just about me enjoying the food. Now, When you're married, obviously, it's not like that. You're with somebody you love and you're enjoying eating with them. But there is something really special about going to a restaurant, reading a book, and hanging out by yourself. And I just think we don't take advantage of that enough when we're single. We're always, and I understand because, I, again, this is something I think about a lot, the idea of the sphere of loneliness. But there's also something to be said for solitude. And solitude is rarer as you get married and as you have children. So this time of your life where you are single, take advantage of the solitude and do things on your own schedule. Take yourself on a date. Go do something that you haven't gotten to do because maybe someone else's schedule hasn't worked with it. So do it yourself. If there is a an exhibit you want to see or if there is a place you want to visit, like go on your own. Why not? And enjoy the your own company. Really enjoy your own company. Um, You can also listen to podcasts if you don't really want to walk around in the silence. I mean, I think that there is something to be said for walking around in silence, but you can also put on some music, which I've done, just because it's like giving yourself a background score while you are experiencing life. And I love that. So take yourself on a date. That's number one. Number two, host parties for your girlfriends. You will learn the art of hosting through hosting. And I think that not enough women, not enough people know how to host parties, know how to host dinners. 
So have your girlfriends over for like once a month for different things. You can have a book club like I do. You can host them for dinner. You can have a costume party. You can do a murder mystery party like I mentioned. And just learn how to host by hosting. But also enjoy the the fun of hosting your friends. Making, you know, choosing plates and and cutlery and, and decorating or just learn it. Maybe you learn something new in the kitchen. And so you want to cook something cool. So you you cook something for them so that they can try it. Or maybe you just want to dress up. You got an outfit that you want to share with your friends. So you decide to have a costume party or you decide to have like a dressy get together. Why not host more? I think that we don't do that enough in today's day and age. And it makes me really sad because I've found that people aren't comfortable having people at their homes because they think of it as like too much work. You will stand out if you are the person who hosts in your friend group. You will become that person that people think of as responsible, as fun, as dependable, but also as just a cool person. I mean, and then you can branch out. Like you can start off with just your girlfriends. And then if you want to start doing social events at your home or at your apartment, then you can meet people. And that's a pretty cool thing. You can sort of create a situation where you are setting up your own singles events in a way. And that's a fun way to introduce yourself to new people. I have this idea that I've mentioned to people before that you can do parties where it's like every person needs to bring someone that the host hasn't met. And so then you're getting a really cool eclectic group of people, but they've been vetted by the people you already like. So you know that you're probably going to like the people they're bringing to. So that's number two, host parties for your girlfriends. Okay, number three. Number three is to experiment with your style and makeup. I talk about style quite a bit because I think that style is a reflection of your personality. And so this is the time of your life. Now, you're you're always constantly changing, but this is the time of your life where you're really figuring out who you are. And so choosing clothing, figuring out your style at this point is going to be so much fun because you can choose what you want to wear, what you like, and really not take into consideration your spouse's tastes. <laughs> so when you get married, it's important to dress in a way that your spouse finds attractive, that your spouse likes, that your spouse enjoys. And when you are single, you don't have to worry about that quite yet. So you can just figure out your style. Now, most of the time, the way that you dress actually will attract the kind of guy who is attracted to that style of dressing. (laughs) So if you discover that you really like to wear a lot of flowered print dresses, you'll because that is a reflection of your personality, you'll find that the guys you're attracting are attracted to women who wear flower print dresses. If you haven't really discovered your style yet, if you're just kind of doing leggings and sweatshirts, which not to say that's not to say that isn't a style, but if you're doing it just because it's easy and without thinking, then you might address you might attract guys who like that style. And then as you discover your sense of style afterwards, maybe your husband doesn't like it so much. And then you kind of have to balance things a little more. Whereas if you figure out your style before you meet your husband then you are attracting a guy who also likes the way that you dress. So that's a cool thing. But it also gives you room to just experiment in this time of your single life with clothing that you like. You can try all different things. Um, I know that when I was 
single, I really went through quite a lot of different phases with the way that I dressed. And I found by the time I met my husband that I really enjoyed dressing in in more of a classic way. Now, at the time, I wasn't dressing modestly quite yet, but now it's all incorporated into one thing. It's like modest and classic, and that makes me really happy. And you can also experiment with your makeup. I love makeup. Not everybody like enjoys the process and creativity of makeup as much as I do. That's something that I really love. But you can figure out your signature style. You can figure out if you are a red lip person. You can figure out if you are a foundation person. You can figure out if you like a cat eye. Or you can figure out that maybe you really just like a tinted moisturizer and nothing more. But this is the time to discover what you're comfortable with when it comes to your makeup how to accentuate your best features. I'm a big mascara person. I love mascara. It's like if I could do one thing and nothing else, it would be mascara. And you'll find what is the most beautiful thing about you by discovering what makeup accentuates about you. So that is number four, or rather that is number three, experiment with your style and makeup. Number four is go to art classes or audition for theater productions. Who doesn't love art? Who doesn't love learning a new skill in the arts? I, when I was younger in high school, I went to summer programs where I would learn how to sketch and draw. I thought I was going to be a fashion designer. So I did that kind of thing. I also love performing. I love auditioning for theater productions. And once you get married and once you have kids, you're not going to have time to do a community theater production. But when you're single, you do. So this is the time to take an art class or to audition for a theater production that you want to try out for and see if you get to do because you'll have time to go to the rehearsals. I love the idea of finding things to do with your time that are both productive in the sense that you're creating something and actually just creative. Like you're doing something wonderful with your time where at the end you're saying, oh, I learned something or I made a project or I'm participating in a production that I'm really proud of. And that's something that you get to do when you're single. You'll have the opportunity, the time to do those things. And you're improving yourself. These are such classic things that you get to take advantage of when you are single. So number four is go to art classes or audition for theater productions. Number five is volunteer for causes you care about. It's so important at this stage to put yourself in positions where you can help the the things that you care about, right? So for example, if you are pro-life, volunteering for pro-life organizations, volunteering at pregnancy crisis centers, you can make a difference in people's lives by giving your time for free. And think about already by all of the things that I'm talking about, like how much more you'll have on your schedule if you do these things and all in a positive way, you won't be have time to be lonely if you are volunteering and going to art classes or being in theater productions or experimenting with your style, like hosting parties for your girlfriends. You're not going to have time to be lonely. And one of the things I always say, I'm getting a little sidetracked here, but one of the things I always say is dating a person who is busy is very attractive. When a guy asks you, are you busy Uh, like Thursday night, or are you busy so-and-so time? If you are always free, 
it's much less attractive than if you are like, no, actually, I'm busy that night, but I'd be free this night. It's great when you have a busy schedule because then it doesn't look like you're desperate. And the truth is you don't want to be desperate. You don't want to have so much free time that you are always open to any date at any time that a guy offers. You would rather have other engagements and other things that you're doing with your life. And then dating is fits into that. So volunteering for causes you care about is number five. And I think that's really important. Number six, read as much as you can. The classic woman is always reading. It's always, you're always learning something. You're always enjoying time by a fireplace or with a cup of tea or in your little reading nook. And you're just learning something, reading something, taking new information in. And it can be nonfiction or fiction. I mean, we can learn things from fiction too. This is an amazing time of your life where you get to read without worrying about time. You can just read because you want to and because you enjoy it. Take advantage of it, man. Read as much as you can. And don't turn down opportunities to do other things because you're reading. I think that can cross into dangerous territory. But I think that if you have a few off minutes in an evening, instead of immediately hopping on Netflix or immediately hopping on Amazon Prime, consider just pulling out a book and reading because you'll always feel better when you finish a book than when you finish a movie because you did something. It's like, in a way, we think of reading as work. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but there's something like you accomplish something. You don't feel that same thing when you binge a show or when you binge a movie. You you don't feel like you accomplish something by doing it. But with reading, you do. And that is a really cool thing. So number six is read as much as you can. Number seven is find a church or a synagogue that you love. This is the time to find a faith community that you enjoy. And it's hard to do when you're single because a lot of faith communities are built around married families. But there are faith communities that are built for singles. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the one that you stick with, obviously, after you get married and have children. But at least having that support system when you're single can really make your life so good and much better because other people are going through what you're going through. And you're getting to serve God with people who are in the same place and stage of life. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't find a church or synagogue that has a mix. I mean, there are a ton that I know of where you have singles as well as married couples with kids and everybody is together, which is a really great thing because then you're getting to participate in the lives of young children, even when you don't have children yourself, which I think is always wonderful. But finding a good church or synagogue that you connect with will make all the difference when you are single because you will have that strength that comes from being part of a good faith community. Number eight, if you have nieces and nephews or friends with children, babysit. Learn how to be around children. I think a lot of people don't take don't know how to be around kids nowadays. Like unless you are from a family that has a lot of children and then your siblings have kids, a lot of people don't know how to be around children. And it's like, it frightens them. So now is the time to learn. First of all, being around kids is super fun. So why not? But second of all, you learning how to interact with them, not even necessarily how to care for them, although I think that's important too, but even just learning how to interact with kids is so important. 
a lot of people don't even know how to do that. They don't know that like kids like to be treated in many ways like little adults. They want to be taken seriously. And learning how to interact with kids is going to be so helpful down the line. And also, it's just wonderful to know. I mean, even if you never have your own children, being somebody who's comfortable around kids is so important and it's so lovely and it's so attractive. So take the time now to learn how to do it because you will, you will love it. You being around babies, so fun being around kids. It's really, it can bring you back to your own child, like what childlike sense of wonder. So this is the time to learn how to act around kids, raise kids, Take care of them. Go ahead and do it now. Why not? Get a head start. And number nine is if you have nieces and nephews. Oh, I already said that. (laughs) Number nine is go on as many dates as you can. So I am somebody who believes that you should never say no to a first date. I don't think you have to say yes to a second date. Don't get me wrong. But unless a guy's a creep or just really not not a good idea, say yes to every first date. And you can decide what the length of that date will be in the sense that you, if it's a really promising situation, then maybe you can say, okay, I'll go to a movie and dinner with you. Or if it's somebody who you're like, mm, I doubt that this is going to be anything, like maybe just a cup of coffee. But never say no because you don't know who the right guy is going to be. It might be someone who totally surprises you. And... Saying no to somebody that you assume is bad for you is just that. It's an assumption. So you don't know if that's true. On top of which, saying yes to every date you go on teaches you how to date. It teaches you what you're looking for. It teaches you what you want. It teaches you how to interact and get comfortable with someone on in, an, in a weird situation. Because let's be honest, dating is weird. So going on as many dates as you can is my last piece of advice for how to embrace singledom as a classic woman. So those are the nine ways that you can go ahead and embrace this time of your life. I think that you are in an amazing time of your life and you should feel really good about it, even if you are looking towards the future and you hope for for more. You hope for marriage, you hope for children. Where you are now is not a bad place to be. It's a beautiful place to be. And you can do so much with the time that you have. So Enjoy it, love on it, be super happy about where you're at while also looking toward the future. So now let's get into today's faith talk. So this week we are in Parshas Shmos, Parshat Shmos, which is the first Torah portion in Exodus. And oh my gosh, so much happens in this Parsha. I legitimately sat down to read it and I was like, oh, yay, this is the story of of Egypt, of the Jews and slavery and and leaving Egypt. This is like the the story of the plagues. This is the coolest story ever. I love this Parsha. And I had forgotten how much happens in this Torah portion. It is ridiculous. I sat down and I started reading and I was like, well, I could talk about this. And then I paused for a second and I was like, well, I guess I could I could talk about this. (laughs) And then I paused and I was like, I could also talk about this. I mean, there is so much to talk about. And honestly, I had to talk with a friend for him to kind of say, you know what's so interesting about this Parsha? And I was like, oh, that is interesting. That is a really good place to start. And that's a really good thing to talk about. So 
Here is a summary of what's going on in this Parsha. First, the very beginning, Joseph dies, and a new pharaoh rises as king of Egypt. He hates the Jews and begins by by taxing them excessively. Then he enslaves them, and then he decrees that all baby boys must be thrown in the Nile. Because the Jews are multiplying like crazy, Pharaoh is nervous. He doesn't want to see them overtake the Egyptians, and he doesn't like the Jews. So that's why all of this is happening. He calls two Hebrew midwives and tells them that they're the ones who are going to take care of these Jewish boys. And they tell them, they tell Pharaoh that they can't get there in time because the women are so adept at bearing the children themselves, like they're their own midwives. But Pharaoh doubles down on his decree. Then Moses is born. His mother, Yocheved, I don't know how to say that in English, hides him for three months. But when she can no longer hide him, she pushes him out into the Nile in a basket where he is rescued by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. She asks for a Hebrew nursemaid and a little girl named Miriam, who happens to be Moses's brother, uh, sister rather, (laughs) uh, runs home to her own mother and uses Moses' own mother as his nursemaid. So it's interesting because he's partly raised in Pharaoh's home, which is obviously incredibly Egyptian, and partly raised in his own mother's home, which is very Jewish. When he's grown, he sees an Egyptian striking a Jewish slave, and he kills the Egyptian. When Moses realizes what he's done and that people are are beginning to know what what he's done, he runs away to Midian. There he helps seven young women draw water from a well that a bunch of mean mean goat herds or shepherds had chased them away from. And that's how he meets his wife. That's how Moses meets his wife, Zipporah. And we still haven't even gotten to the burning bush. The burning bush happens in this, in this Torah portion. God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. And there's a very long and interesting conversation. I debated whether I wanted to comment on it because Moses is so humble to the point where God actually gets frustrated. Like God gets angry at him for just constantly saying, shouldn't someone else do this? Am I right for this role? No one's going to believe me. And God finally is like, dude, relax. (laughs) Your brother is going to help you because Moses had a stutter and Aaron, his brother, did not. And he was going to orate for him. So God speaks to Moses and directs him to return to Egypt and save the Jewish people. On Moses' way back to Egypt, he is attacked by a snake, monster kind of thing. And it's because he hadn't circumcised his son. So Zipporah recognized this because the snake had kind of swallowed Moses up until his nether regions. And she figured out, oh, this is a sign because we didn't circumcise our baby boy, because we didn't know whether like there would be time for him to recover between our travel from Midian to Egypt. But we were supposed to have done it. I can't believe we didn't do it. So she quickly circumcises her son and saves Moses' life. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and ask him to release the Jews. And he only makes their work even harder and punishes them even more. And that's just the first Torah portion. Like, what? So much happens. This iconic Moses in Egypt story, like, we have already done so much. And it's one Torah port. I I know I keep going on about this, but I was shocked. Because, you know, to be honest, when you're in school, you're learning the chapters, 
the Parsha, like the chapter itself, the Perek. That's what it is in Hebrew. We did learn the Torah portions in the sense that every week we knew that there was going to be a different Torah portion. But I always thought of it as more in the in the chapters as, as opposed to like the sections, as, a, as opposed to the portions. So each chapter has a normal amount of information. Each Torah portion is like a full story, which is incredible. So as you can see, when I kind of run you through the story, through through the summary here, you can see why I was like, okay, what am I going to talk about? (laughs) But here's what I want to talk about. Looking back on this Parsha, it's insane to me that anyone could say that the Bible doesn't respect women or doesn't think women are strong. The women in this chapter save everyone. We have the midwives who defend the Jewish people, right? Shifra and Pua are their names. And they are the ones who go to Pharaoh and tell him like, sorry, bud, the Jewish women, they're just too good at having babies. We can't, nope, we can't stop it. Sorry about that. Which is amazing, right? Then we have the Jewish women themselves who bear their children so powerfully and so quickly that they can't even be stopped. Nobody could even stop the boys from being born because the women are so good at bearing the children themselves. We have Yocheved, Moses' mother, who protects her child from death. For three months, she keeps him secret. And then even then, she doesn't just, you know, give him up for death. She tries to save his life by putting him on the Nile. We have Pharaoh's daughter, who in kind of commentaries, we learn her name is Batya. She saves Moses. We have Miriam. Moses' sister, who brings Moses to the reeds. She's the one who brings him to the Nile and then brings her mother as a nursemaid to Pharaoh's daughter. And we have Tzipora, who saves Moses by circumcising her own son. She's the one who figures out through God's signs what needs to be done. She does it. She saves Moses' life. The women in the Torah, in the Old Testament, are strong and bold and righteous. And we have so much to learn from their example. But this is the real question, okay? How are they strong? And this is where, you know, maybe why feminists would hate the the Torah (laughs) or why someone would say that the Torah is patriarchal. Because the women in the Torah aren't strong physically. Men are stronger than women physically, okay? We all agree. What the women in the Torah are strong in is the ways in which women are strong. I know that's like repetitive, but my point is, is that the women are strong in their own unique way because they are women. They're midwives. They bear children. They raise and rescue babies. They are intuitive and can understand when God's message is being sent and can understand what God was trying to communicate with Zipporah and Moses. Through their womanhood, they are strong. That's the lesson. Women are strong. Women are brave. And they save men and civilizations by being amazing at the things women are amazing at. When these women in the Parsha show their strength through real womanhood. 
that's when they are most strong, most effective, most brave. It's not because they are trying to be something they're not. It's not because they're trying to be stronger than men. It's because they are being strong and amazing at the things that women are strong and amazing at. The mid, I mean, the story of the midwives is truly incredible, right? Because Shifra and Pua stand up to Pharaoh. And then you've got the women themselves bearing their children because they know the decree that the baby boys are going to be killed. So they're going to bear their own children without any help if that means that their children will live. How inspiring is that? I love that the women in the Torah take such an important role in the story. And you can see how important and present they are throughout. And this is just one Torah portion. So we, I can't wait to see the, the representation of women throughout the rest of it. It's, uh, it's really incredible. So that is our faith talk for today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Let me know your thoughts. And uh, let's get into our subscriber questions. Okay, so we are on to our last portion, our last segment of the Classically Abbey podcast. We've got a few questions here from premium subscribers of my Substack. Just as a reminder, if you'd like to submit questions for the Classically Abbey podcast, make sure to head over to classicallyabbey.substack.com where you can become a subscriber for $7 a month. Or if you subscribe for the whole year, you will get two months for free and you'll get access to a ton of other exclusive content. So I highly recommend checking it out. Let's hop right in. Dear Abby, I am a recent mom, a couple months behind you and currently working from home. My husband is a psychiatrist and we have been married for five years. As you can imagine, I don't get out much. I'm wondering how can a mom, how a mom can go out and make friends with other moms out there. To be honest, I feel out of place when I hang out with my post-college friends. We are in completely different paths to the point I don't have much in common with them anymore. I am worried because of our different lifestyles, we will drift apart. I do care for them a lot, but it is difficult to make plans when they just want to go to bars and banter about their promiscuous lifestyles. Anyway, I figured starting the new year, I will take this opportunity to look for other women who have the same views and lifestyles as me. But... How can I make new friends? So I, I get it. I get where you're coming from. Making friends as a new mom, especially at the beginning, is hard. I would say at this stage, once, you know, your baby's more on a schedule, once you're nursing a little less, once you've figured out nursing, like, it's, it's a lot easier. But first, let's talk about just your post-college friends. I can understand why you're worried that you're going to drift apart. My point of view on that is you can maintain friendships with people who are, into, are who are in a different stage of life than you are, but you may not be as close until they're in a similar stage of life, especially if they don't really get what you're doing. <laughs> uh, if they're not really into the idea of you being a mom or into the idea of you being married, it, it can cross over into a judgmental territory. And of course, you're not super happy to hear about their promiscuous lifestyle either because you don't think it's good for them. So I think that it's okay if during this period of time where they are in a very different stage of life, you remain friends without necessarily going out of your way to hang out with them in the situations you're not going to be comfortable in, right? 
If you can go to brunch with them, if you can go to lunch, like that's great. You get to hang out with them. You can catch up. But if you're being invited into parties or to bars that you're just not interested in, you don't have to go. And if the friendship grows apart a little bit during this time, that's okay. You may end up finding that the friends that you make now, you will get even closer to than the friends that you were close with at a different point in your life. And it's possible that they may never come around to where you are and to what you're doing. And if those friendships end, that's okay too. You don't have to actively end them, not at all. But if they naturally kind of come to a point where neither one of you, it doesn't really make sense for the friendship to continue. That's okay. And you don't have to feel bad about it because there are some friendships that are perfect for the time of life and the stage of life that you're in when you make that friend. And then as you grow and as you kind of go different ways, the friendship doesn't really make sense anymore. And that's okay too. It doesn't, it's not a comment on either of you. It's just a comment on where you're at and where you're going. So don't worry too much if your friendships end up growing apart and being, going out of your way to like go to a brunch or go to lunch. That's nice. But Anything more than that, where you are putting yourself in a situation, going to, you know, an event that you don't want to go to, don't do it. Don't, don't put yourself in that, in that situation. It's not worth it. As far as how to meet new moms, the way that I've met new moms is, I would say there are two ways. One, when you're pregnant and when you have babies, I think people are more open to you eavesdropping. I say this in a, in a funny way, Okay. So for example, when I was pregnant with Mr. Baby, I was getting my nails done and I heard kind of like two seats down from me, a woman talking to her uh, nail technician about her experience giving birth and how she'd given birth just a few weeks ago and all of that. And I was eavesdropping a little bit, but I just interrupted (laughs) And I was like, oh, when did you give birth? Yes, I'm expecting. I'd love to hear more about your experience. And that woman and I became very good friends when I was living in Virginia. So that was really, really fun. So that's a way to meet moms is if you hear somebody talking about motherhood stuff in a scenario like that, when you're getting your nails done, or if you're online at the grocery store, like introduce yourself. People are really laid back about it. And honestly, once you talk to a stranger and you kind of make things fun, they're usually willing to be like, oh, a new friend. Cool. And I know it sounds weird, but that has worked for me a number of times. And it's kind of funny and also a great story about how you met someone. I wish people were more comfortable with talking to somebody who they've never met before, especially about motherhood stuff. So I don't think anyone's going to look at you like you're crazy. And if they do, eh, they're lost. You're never going to see them again. So I... I think that's a really good way to meet people. But the best way that I've met people is through my synagogue. There are so many new moms at my synagogue. There are so many babies. Our synagogue, when we moved here, there were three other babies born the same week. And I am very good friends with all three moms who also had babies the same time. And there's a bunch of other people who maybe don't have babies the exact same age, but have babies kind of a year older or a couple years older. And we are super great friends. If you can join a church or a synagogue with women who are in the same age range, they don't have to be exactly in your exact, you know, one baby and that's it. Or like there are women I know who have four babies and that is great. And we are really good friends. So 
I would say that finding a, a faith community where the members of your church or synagogue are um, in your same stage of life, that is really the best way to meet new moms. That has been my experience and it has been fantastic. So that's where I would start. Okay, next question. I grew up Reformed Jewish, but don't agree at all with a lot of the values those temples now push, social justice in place of Judaism. Before I continue, I understand my husband grew up Reformed and he always called, what did he say? It's the Democratic, it's the Jewish wing of the Democratic Party. I think that's what he used to say. <laughs> yeah, being Reform, it's, it is. It, the values there are totally not Torah values and I find it really frustrating. The only other option semi-close to me is Chabad. Can you offer some insight into the community or advice if my family joins? So if you don't know, Chabad is kind of like outreach for Jews who are not observant. And it's their goal is just to create a warm and welcoming environment to all Jews. So the great thing about Chabad is that you will go to a synagogue and the rabbi is going to be wearing a black hat and have a big beard and have a long black jacket on. And the people who are there are going to be from every walk of life. Like you will have somebody there in leggings. You'll have somebody there in shorts. You'll have somebody there in a more modest dress. Like everybody there is just on their own path. And Chabad is there to provide a space for you to explore your Judaism more. So the the insight I can offer is it is going to be better than you think. (laughs) You might think, oh, this is a little awkward or this is a little weird. It's not at all because they are incredibly accepting. They just want to see more Jews interact with their Judaism. That is the, that is their purpose. So the community at Chabad, it really can range depending on where you live, but you can have a community that is a little bit more freeform in the sense that there are people who are just kind of looking for a hub and they are from all different walks of life and they're all, uh, they drive there on Shabbos and they're all like different ages Or you could have a community that's a little bit more built up. And so you'll have people there who are regulars and who come every Shabbos, who come every Sabbath, and who are a little bit more observant, but they're still going to be welcoming to somebody who doesn't know much about Judaism. So I don't know where you live. So I don't know what community you're going to be a part of, but I would say don't be freaked out by the fact that the rabbi is going to look more religious than you are because he doesn't care where you're at. He just wants you to be there. He's just happy for you to be there. So try it out. I'd love to know how it goes. Uh, You are a premium subscriber, so you should be able to leave a comment. Let me know if you attend a service there. I'd really like to hear. So that is question number two. And last question for today's episode. Have you got any tips for a first date? And how long do you think someone should date before getting married? Love those questions. Ooh, there's even more. Should a woman pay on a date? Very good question. So let's start with, have you got any tips for a first date? Yes. And I have many videos talking about this. I also have done a speech on it or about dating generally. Um, So I'll just give like one or two tips. Tip number one is do your makeup If you're going to do makeup, do your makeup in a way that accentuates your features and doesn't obscure them. So you always want, and and this goes for your hair too, you always want to do something, and honestly it goes for the way that you dress, you want to do something that 
shows who you are, shows what you look like, and doesn't obscure it behind puffy clothes or behind green eyeshadow or behind a crazy color wig. I don't know why someone would wear a wig on a date, but who knows? Um, Trying to be as close to your actual appearance as possible while accentuating the best parts of you, that's the goal. Because you want the guy that you're going on a date with to actually see you. So that's number one. Number two is for a first date, just get a feel for the chemistry. Date number two is when you start asking big questions. That's my rule. Date number two is when you start asking big questions. But date number one, that's when you are going to um, want to just see if you and this person have fun together. I think that's really the thing for a first date is are you interested in the second date? Are you even interested in going out again? And seeing if you guys like each other. So just relax a little bit for the first date. You don't have to go off your list quite yet. And see how you get along. See if you enjoy this person's company. And just see how that chemistry is. How long do you think someone should date before getting married? So I, okay. Because the the way the question is phrased is a little confusing because it's before getting married as opposed to getting engaged. And then how long should the engagement be? Okay, so here's what we're gonna here's what I'm gonna say. It should take you, in my opinion, no longer than a year to figure out, maybe a year and a half to figure out if you are right for someone. It, why does it take you longer than that? If you've asked the big questions early on, if you have chemistry, if your families get along, what what are you waiting for? Now you're just testing and testing and testing and wasting time. It's not worth it. Uh, I am a proponent of. Ask the big questions. See if you like each other. Do you enjoy each other's company? Like, okay, the questions are answered. Why are you waiting? Now, engagement, no longer than a year. Hard stop. No longer than a year. Because engagement is the hardest time of a relationship. Everyone's going to tell you it's the romantic, you know, lovey-dovey honeymoon period. It's not. Engagement is hard because you're planning a wedding. You are dealing with families who have opinions about that wedding and you are standing on the edge of a diving board waiting to make that giant commitment and the longer you're waiting to make a commitment the longer you question whether or not it's the right commitment to make and it has nothing to do with whether it's the right commitment to make it's just that it's so uncomfortable waiting to actually do something this huge and this big that it can make you want to back out so a year is the longest I recommend I my husband and my engagement was five and a half months. That was fine. Uh, we also got married. We met and got married in a year. So ours was more expedited than many people's, but it was it, it worked for us. So that that's my advice regarding that. And then should a woman pay on a date? Here's the answer to that question. A woman should pay on a date if you guys are in... Uh, are not earning your own money. So for example, if you guys are dating in high school or if you guys are dating in college and you're the guy you're on a date with is getting, you know, a stipend from his parents and you're getting a stipend from your parents and you guys are living off of your parents' money, why should his parents be paying for all of his dates? Uh, I think that it can cross into dangerous territory if, you know, if the guy is taking advantage of the dating situation. But I'll be honest, I'm not a huge, I don't think that a man has to pay on every date because a date, dating can get expensive and it's hard. Like 
I was thinking about kosher food is super expensive. If a guy took a girl out to dinner, every time he took a girl out on a date, he would be out at like $150 once a week. That's crazy for one meal. Like that's crazy. So I understand the concept of splitting the bill. And I know that's really funny because I'm classic and that's my thing. But I also think that lessening the burden of the cost of a meal and allowing people to just enjoy each other's company as opposed to being concerned about what the other person is ordering, I'm not, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I think it's nice if a guy can afford it and if a guy like wants to make a girl feel taken care of. But, and maybe the first date the guy should pay. But like, again, I'm pretty flexible on that topic because when Jacob and I started dating, we split a lot of our dates and I was totally fine with that because I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's just split it. It worked for us. So I don't think a man always has to pay, but you can also kind of get the vibe from him and decide, okay, is he being a jerk or is he being just practical? And like, it makes sense that we're going to split it. You can... I think you can read the room on that. So that is my thoughts. And that is today's episode of the Classically Abby podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts so you can get a notification about next episode, about all of the future episodes. And make sure to stay tuned because we're going to have some really fun interviews coming up. I also would love if you would consider subscribing to my YouTube channel and to my Substack newsletter. And if you're not following me on social media, it's at Classically Abby, absolutely everywhere. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.